invite you to turn to Psalm 51 in your Bible. We began with this psalm last Sunday, and I dealt with a substantial part of it in the first nine verses as we heard this cry of David. It can only be characterized as the cry wrung out of his soul as he recognized the enormity and the darkness of sin that he had committed and brought it before the mercy of God. You might think of these the first nine verses as the way down, in a sense, the man going to the bottom of himself uh, in the lowest place he could possibly reach. And in a general sense, today we're going to look at the way back up as David, with confidence in God's mercy, now begins to see what it means to recover from this deep repentance. I'll read beginning at verse 10 through 17 as we consider the main part of the remainder of this psalm. David prays, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me out from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Father, help us to take these words into our own understanding and our own dealing with sin in our lives and disobedience and omitted obedience and all the ways that we have displeased you. Let us follow this biblical pattern. Help us to hear it in our minds and our hearts. For Jesus' sake, amen. We've been saying that all true Christianity begins with repentance. The gate through which the gospel of Jesus comes to anyone is the gate of biblical repentance. Now, somebody's going to be quick to say, well, isn't it faith? Isn't it faith in Christ as Savior and Lord that saves us? Of course it is. Not denying that. But you need to know that repentance and saving faith are partners. They have been likened by some people to Siamese twins. The presence of the one mandates the other. It is really impossible to have saving faith with a total absence of biblical repentance and vice versa. Now there are alternatives that superficially resemble true repentance, but they're counterfeit. Many people are caught or exposed in a questionable activity or even a crime or or something hurtful against others that they thought they were covering up, and, and when found out, they quickly say, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I cannot think what came over me. Why, I'll submit to counseling, and, and I'll never do that again. 
But we know that many times this is little more than a guilty conscience skillfully posing and posturing in order to try to rescue a reputation. But it lacks that heart-deep sorrow and honest recognition of an offense against God the way David saw his sin in Psalm 51. Honestly, what people are doing many times is simply saying, I got caught, and I've got to do something to get out of this uncomfortable situation. Somebody said once you cannot purify foul water in a well merely by painting the pump a different color. That's what some people try to do. Do you remember the example of Esau in the Old Testament? He was the firstborn son of Isaac. The firstborn son had a particular blessing. He would inherit the major part of the estate and be the overlord after his father and the, any other sons like Jacob would, would not receive as large a portion. Well, Jacob maneuvered Esau so that he sold his right as firstborn son to Jacob. And not long afterwards, Esau, when he recovered himself, the Bible says he wept bitterly that he had lost the blessing. But you see, he was weeping with regret for what he'd lost. It does not say that he wept for being such a fool as to sell the precious blessing in the first place. And God did not accept the tears of Esau as tears of repentance. He was trying to clean the water by painting the pump. Now, last time we examined Psalm 51, the first nine verses, this sinful man's classic prayer, certainly the great classic of the entire Bible, of a, of a person crying out in a depth of understanding and a very explicit terms, seeing his sin as God saw it, realizing that God saw deep down into him where David prefer to keep things covered up, keep some doors closed in the inner man that God would not look into, some drawers locked that nobody would come along and interfere with. But then he realized, as he probably always knew, that God did see these things. And more than that, that God wanted David to see what he saw. True repentance comes from the Spirit of God. It doesn't come from suddenly getting smart where you were stupid before. It comes from the Spirit of God sponsoring a new view of yourself. The Spirit calls our sin by blunt names and teaches us to call it by the very same names that Scripture calls it and not to substitute something that's shaded to make us, you know, in a more complimentary way to make us look good. Confession to God is needed. Maybe confession to other people is needed as well. True sorrow will come with true repentance. And it will result over time in a more long-standing hatred of the wrongs we have done that will keep us from those things, maybe not 100%, but, but in some ways make us draw back and say, almost as if there was some kind of a demon living in the basement of our house. I'm not going near that again because I know how hateful it is to God and how harmful it's been to me. C.S. Lewis said one time, repentance itself is no fun at all. He said it's a much harder thing than just eating humble pie because it means unlearning the core of self-conceit and self-will that we human beings have been trained in 
for thousands of years. Real repentance does some deep business in the people of God. Last week, we heard from David, the repented king of Israel, as he pretty much hit bottom with a crash and threw himself unreservedly upon the mercy of God. He claimed nothing for himself and said, God, you are going to have to deal with this if anything is to help me. Now today, beginning at verse 10, we, we want to see just two main points here. There are many little side paths, but I'll, I'll keep it to two main points that form a pattern for how anyone travels back to the Lord out of personal brokenness, back into a joyful restoration. Notice, first of all, in Psalm 51, 10 through 12, a series of things that David says, which might come under this heading, a prayer for a new creation. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me out of your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. When David said, create this in me, the Bible was using a very important word here, a very important verb. He was asking for nothing less than a miracle from God. He knew that he spoke to the Creator, God, the God of miracles, and he asked that this Creator would do in him something utterly supernatural like he did at the original creation. A couple of weeks ago, I was speaking from Psalm 19, and I briefly mentioned there a little bit as we were looking at that praise of God's creative acts, the, the word, the Hebrew word bara from Genesis 1, a special biblical word, a powerful word that never means just assembling something or rearranging something, or as we casually use the word, you know, I'm a very creative person. I like to create things, people might say. Well, you can say that, but you're not saying it in the biblical way. You could transplant or rearrange the flowers in your garden. My wife, had, we have a lot of black-eyed Susans, and my wife was suggesting that we take some of the black-eyed Susans and move them to other areas when the weather cools down a little bit in the early fall. I think that's a good idea. But when we do that, we will not have created a single black-eyed Susan. We will have simply rearranged what God has created. And then David here, in saying, create in me, A pure heart is literally asking the God who brought forth stars and mountains and oceans to make something, make something absolutely clean in the place of something filthy. Make something new in place of that which is absolutely useless to him. That's the thrust of his prayer. And we need to realize in application of this that the forgiveness that God provides when we throw ourselves on his mercy in Jesus Christ is really and truly a miraculous work. It's not simply the bestowal of a little favor. You you might ask me to do something for you and and say, oh, pastor, I have a great favor. Sometimes people come say, I have a big favor to ask. And, And when they tell me what they want, it's writing a little reference letter or something. I say, that's not a big thing at all. It's very little. I can do that very easily. It's nothing to me to do that. I'm happy to do it. We're, we're not just asking of God a little favor when we say, by your mercy, cleanse me, make me new. We're asking him for a recreation, a miraculous work. 
2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us in the words of the gospel that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old man or woman is gone and the new has come. The scriptures also teach that one day when Christ has returned, God is going to recreate, make new and purge the creation we have now so that there are new heavens and new earth in which his people will dwell as a final home. Well, we could say that right now every Christian soul made new by the mercy of God as you repent at the foot of the cross of Christ is like a microcosm of that work of new creation. In fact, Ephesians 2.10 says, we are the workmanship of God created in Christ Jesus. He's not just painting up the old exterior with all the foul things still inside. He's making you new by the work of his grace and mercy. Well, having asked for that miracle, David then goes on to elaborate with a couple more requests, and I'll just look at them real quickly. He says, renew in me a steadfast spirit. Steadfastness means standing firm. And in this setting, you would think it means standing firm in a, you know, in a, an inflexible stance when temptation is pushing you and pulling you in every direction. David recognized he had been entirely too morally flexible. His eyes had a tendency to wander too much and to dwell on things like Bathsheba too much when he, he should have glanced and turned away. And David says, God, I need steadfastness. I need some of your divine established obstinacy that will teach me to look away and draw the line and say no to myself and then stand firm. I need that, and you can give it to me. And then David goes on to pray, take not your Holy Spirit from me. This is a a big subject we could say a lot about. I'll try to be brief with it. But when he pleads this, I think David knows the Spirit has not departed. He's not saying, Father, give your spirit back to me. You took it. I need it back. He's saying, oh, Lord, don't take your spirit. Even though I've wandered far from you, even though I've done things that have shamed you and hurt you, your spirit is still with me. The ultimate disaster would be if I lost your spirit. It's really quite amazing that people are able to misread their Bibles today to think somehow that possession of the Holy Spirit in the life of a Christian is something that's only for a special class of Christians or some ultra-dedicated Christians, ultra-spiritual Christians who have the Holy Spirit. That is not the doctrine of the New Testament. It's very plainly taught in the New Testament that without the Spirit of God, you are not a Christian because you have no ability in the first place to call Jesus Lord. Now, you may not be cooperating with the Spirit or experiencing the fullness of the Spirit. That's another subject. But if God had not entered you by His Spirit to open things to you that are spiritually discerned, you never would have desired Christ. You never would have applied to God for His mercy. You would have no appetite for His Word. Any progress towards holiness in a Christian life is 100% motivated and enabled and carried forward by the action of God's Holy Spirit who gives us life in the first place. Don't take your spirit from me, Lord. 
That's a man looking at the ultimate, greatest possible disaster and knowing that it will not happen to him. But then in verse 12, one more request under this theme of prayer for a new, re- new creation. David says here, restore the joy of my salvation and grant me a willing spirit. If you look above, I didn't elaborate at all last week on verse 8 when he said, let the bones you have crushed rejoice. That's really an emphasis on how the joy of being related to God had been extinguished for David. You know, he didn't just say, hey, uh, God, I've broken a bone in my little finger. Could you, could you set it so my finger will be right again? My bones, plural, are crushed. I'm not, uh, you know, an orthopedic surgeon, but I can't even begin to imagine what it means to have a bone totally crushed. Let's imagine some huge weight had fallen upon your arm and, and upper and lower arm bones and the elbow and everything was just pulverized, just crushed. What would a surgeon do with that? How do you reset bones that are crushed, that are broken, not in one or two places, but dozens, scores of places? You'd probably have to amputate the arm, I imagine. Well, David is saying that God, who found me in that condition, is able to knit me together again and bring back my joy. He had the joy of belonging to God once. He displays it in many, many of his psalms. We know that. And he had lost it. It had been eclipsed by his disobedience, by his shame, by having to carefully hide himself from the Lord and from God's voice through the Spirit and his word. Willful sin tends to put a stranglehold on anybody's joy. You, you have to be too careful, you know, too wary of where you put yourself and who you relate to, to in order to really lose yourself in the joy of the Lord when you're hiding something in your life. And he said, once I have that joy, I know I'm going to have a willing spirit. I sense there he's talking about eagerness to join in with the people of God, to enter fully into a rejoicing before the Lord and sacrificially give himself to the things of God. These are all the kinds of qualities that come from that new creation that David was able to confidently pray for here because he knew the mercy of God could miraculously do it. Secondly, the other point I wish you to see is in verses 13 through 17 or maybe 13 to 16 here. Here is a restored believer's pledge to model God's grace. David's now kind of sensing, well, he's out of the woods. He, he knows that God is at work. He knows that God has forgiven. And so now he starts to pray about what will happen subsequently in verse 13. Then I will, when you do this, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. You know, we don't have to be kings uh, sitting on golden thrones in order to know that people are watching us. One of the greatest claims that many agnostic people or unbelievers make against the Christian faith, and it, yes, it may be an excuse, but they use it nevertheless, is, well, I, I can't come into Christianity when I see so many Christians living hypocritical lives. David knew he was watched. He knew that his example was an example for good or ill that influenced 
not just a few, but thousands of people. The people of the kingdom knew when their king was leading them in a righteous way or a way of shame. And now he says, Lord, when your grace has has begun to work in me, I want to broadcast it. I want to make it known so that it's known as widely as my sin is already known. Not necessarily, I don't think he saw himself formally teaching it in a pulpit, but living it. As king, he certainly had the full view of his people to live a life that would be dependent on God and praising God, and that they would see whether that's authentic or not in his daily conversation. And he said, I'm hoping, Lord, that the life that you've restored is going to be one that is going to strengthen many people to turn to you. The same principle is present in Luke 22. That night before the cross when Jesus was speaking to Peter, a very familiar word, and predicting to Peter that he would deny him three times, Peter said, no, I won't. The Lord said, you will. But then he said this, I have prayed for you, Peter. And when you have turned back again, strengthen your brothers. You see, Jesus knew that a Peter who was recovered from betrayal, who had experienced the great mercy of God and the restoration of God, would be a stronger spiritual leader than ever before when he had not known what that was. Some of you are old enough to remember back to the mid-1970s when President Nixon's so-called hatchet man in the White House, Chuck Colson, the attorney who handled all the dirty work, supposedly, or at least was a key leader of the whole Watergate plot that brought down the Nixon presidency. You might remember about Colson coming to Christ in a rather dramatic way. He, he wrote a self-testimony, published a book called Born Again, and he went to prison. Well, the newspapers and the media had a, a field day with Colson because he had been such a tough guy, such a scornful man. They, well, I remember it was said one time Colson would be willing to run over his own grandmother to, to do something for the administration. Colson found Jesus. Ha, ha, ha. Jailhouse religion, they all said. This certainly won't last. Well, now 30 years later, Chuck Colson has so admirably lived and served the kingdom of God through his remarkable prison ministry and many other ways that he's become just another living exhibit A of what divine mercy does when it makes somebody all over again makes them miraculously new from the inside. And then besides being an example here in this second point, David further says in verse 15, Lord, open my lips so that my mouth will declare your praise. I think he understood that worship was was a closed subject for people who are living with their shame and who are not confessing their sin. You might attend a worship gathering. You might be sitting here this morning. But I've known people who have been cheating on their marriage or have some other real fault going on in their life, in their business, or something else that they're, they think nobody's finding out about, and they're, they're here in the wooden pew every week, and guess what? They're practically made of wood also as far as ability to enter in to the praise and worship of God. The doctrines of, wor- of the Word of God are unwelcome to such a person who doesn't want any reminder of his own condition. The songs that people sing fall flat on their ear. 
But may I say to you that when God makes a sinner new by his pardon, he also makes a great singer out of that sinner. Someone, regardless of vocal ability, who's able to enter in and sing the praises of a Savior. Now, with the short time we have this morning on this Communion Sunday, I want to wrap it up this way and tell you that in summary of Psalm 51, we need to say that repentance is God's master key. It's a master key. It practically opens every door to the blessing of his salvation. It's a key that will never fail you when you use it. Verse 17 summarizes it. it. It refers to the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament, which was meant, of course, to point to something more than the outward act of bringing a bloody lamb or you know, an offering of grain or fruit or something. It was meant to look forward to a heart, a spirit that was sacrificing itself, that was laying itself down. And here David summarizes that entire system of worship when he says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh, God, you will not despise that. That will always be an acceptable sacrifice. Now, if you think this is a psalm about woe and sadness, I'll tell you, sure, it starts out that way. As a man mourns over great crimes against God, but please see how his joy came back. See how God put almost laughter back in his voice once David had experienced the fantastic mercy of God. Charles Spurgeon, in a message on this psalm, said this one time, Sorrow for sin in the life of a Christian falls like perpetual rain, but it's a sweet, soft shower lasting all our lives that does good work in us. And I would add to Spurgeon, whatever pain, your repentance, your honesty before God might cause you, it might be sharp, it might hurt, it needs to hurt. But if we don't submit to that momentary pang of regret and and honesty and confession, then our pains are going to be eternal, not momentary. Let 2 Corinthians 7.10 be a last word that shows the difference between a worldly brand of sorrow over sin that just says, oh, I'm sorry, but nothing more. That is so shallow that 2 Corinthians 7.10 says that kind of sorrow leads to death. But on the contrary, Paul said there is godly sorrow that leads to repentance and brings salvation and leaves no regrets. You need to read Psalm 51 over and over and understand it's the handbook to instruct you in saving repentance that might begin in bitter tears but ends in holy joy. And when we truly see our nature as God does and sorrow for it and and are honest about it, it's not a matter of morbid introspection. It is God's merciful gift that leads you to a whole new life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let us pray. Father, even this morning as we take emblems of the cross in our hands and taste them, we ask that you would keep teaching us repentance. We may not need 
a great drama flat on our faces like David, but we all need the little dramas of repentance day in and day out. Teach us to be humbled before you. Teach us the joy, the laughter that comes from delight when you make us clean and new. For Jesus' sake, amen.